you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series, one episode at a time. However, in this bonus episode review series, I am reviewing Monkey Paw Productions' Twilight Zone reboot on CBS All Access, hosted by Jordan Peele. If you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Any and all feedback or conversation or what have you is very well recommended (laughs) because it's just me on the microphone, and uh, I love hearing from listeners. Um, also, you can find more of Anthology at my website, anthologypod.com, where I just recently revamped the menus a little bit, so now you can view the archive for the main feed and view a separate archive for bonus and special episodes. So that's just a way to kind of make make it a little more accessible to find, like, if you're looking for a specific episode of The Twilight Zone, you can... Just go to the main feed archive and see all of the episodes of The Twilight Zone I've reviewed. Or if you want to check out, like, say, my review of Season 3 of Black Mirror, you can just go to the bonus episode archive and find that there. I have the bonus episodes separated by show title, so... Um, yeah, so enjoy that. Um, you can also filter, you can also now filter the posts that appear on the homepage by the different titles of TV shows I've reviewed. So if you just want to see a display of the most recent episodes of the Twilight Zone that I've reviewed, you can just click the Twilight Zone, um, tab under, um, I think the heading is something like, uh, filter episodes by show title. Um, same goes for Twilight or same goes for Twilight Zone 2019, Black Mirror, Science Fiction Theater, all that stuff. So anyway, enjoy that revamping on the website. And uh, yeah, so today on the podcast, I will be discussing uh, or reviewing by myself, um, Not All Men. It's the seventh episode of the Twilight Zone's first season, and it originally premiered on May 9th, 2019 on CBS All Access. And before I get into my review of the episode, I do have some notes from previous episodes of the podcast. And... Really, these just boil down to things that I missed from previous episodes of the new Twilight Zone run. So, going way back to Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. Um, so, okay, I did something kind of really nerdy and weird today. <laughs> um, I am not stressing out over this, but I ha- I am at a point where I am now, I think, three episodes behind on the new Twilight Zone. And I'm recording this the night before the season finale drops on CBS All Access. So I have a bit of a backlog to go through. And um I have a bunch of episodes of <laughs> of The Twilight Zone I need to watch both old and new. So what I did was I um since I've been adding um clips from the episodes in in the podcast more recently, more frequently, more recently, um I have MP3 rips of the episodes. So <laughs> what I did today 
um, in my supreme nerdy mind, um, a peek behind the curtain. It was my first day back from first day back at my day job um, in five days. I had a five day weekend because I took off Friday and Tuesday, and of course Memorial Day was Monday. So my first day back, I took the episodes that I need to record reviews of. Um, so I took. Um, anyway, that it's neither here nor there. I took the MP3s, put them on my phone, and then I listened to the episodes of the original Twilight Zone and the new Twilight Zone as I was working, um, as if they were a podcast or radio drama. So after I listened to the ones that I, uh, are, are pending reviews, I went back and started listening from the beginning of the 2019 Twilight Zone. And that's when I realized that in Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, um, the music that's played at the beginning and at the magazine stand where, um, Justin, uh, Sanderson meets Joe Beaumont. Um, the music that's playing is like this kind of like, I don't know if it's technically Muzak, but it's like, it's like a melody of Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra, which plays at the end of the episode. So I thought that was an interesting thing that I didn't catch the millions of times I watched that episode. Um, also, I don't remember if I mentioned this in uh, my previous bonus episode, but a couple things about The Wonderkind. Um, still don't like the episode that much. Um, the more I, th- man, the more I think about it, and I'll talk about this in the season one wrap up episode I'm going to be doing, but the more I think about The Wonderkind, like, uh, they, they could have got like, they, uh, it's, it's such a frustrating episode because if they're going to do an episode about a little kid as president as being a, a, um, uh, an allegory to, to Trump, like why dumb it down so much? Why do so much to make it seem like he's really a kid? Like, like the whole, all of his campaign promises are just, little kid promises and everything that no one's going to care about. Like no voting voting person is, but like, why not, you know, go full Trump and do like full, like showcase how moronic Trump's appearances on TV in the lead up to the election was, um, before the election. I just think, I don't know. I just, I just think the Wonderkind was a total missed opportunity. Anyway, um, I neglected to mention, or I rather, I didn't realize that the actor who played the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in a couple of scenes in that episode was Aaron Douglas, who played the chief in Battlestar Galactica. Totally blew my mind when I figured that out. Um, and I still think he gives an, an, a great performance in The Wonderkind. Um, in fact, his scene with Raph, where he's talking about, um, how everyone's happy, everyone loves their free video games, and uh, and it's a weird time to be talking trees. And, like, for an episode that doesn't have, like, a Twilight Zone element, that moment is the closest we get to, like, actually, like, having, like, a Twilight Zone en- element of... I almost said Twilight Zone enema. Um, Twilight Zone element of, um, like, some kind of fanta- fantastical or science fiction thing. Anyway, um, so that was cool. And just shout out to Aaron Douglas because he was great in that scene. Um, also, there is a Busy Bee Diner cup in the debate prep scene. So there was an Easter egg that I missed. And then finally, uh, regarding Six Degrees of Freedom, I did not realize or had no idea. I heard this on another podcast. I can't remember what it was. Um, but, oh, man, I really wish I would have remembered what it was. Um, I think it may have been the Fifth Dimension, like the original Fifth Dimension podcast. Anyway, they uh, pointed out that the crew member character names 
Um, in Six Degrees of Freedom, we're taken from season one, uh, of the original series, Twilight Zone, episode, I Shot an Arrow into the Air. In that episode, that, that episode, uh, which has a lot of similarities to Six Degrees of Freedom, um, has several astronaut characters that are named Donlan, Pearson, Langford, and Brandt. Um, and those all correspond to four of the five characters in, um, Six Degrees of Freedom. The only one that wasn't in the episode or wasn't um given a name that correlated to that episode of the original series was Ray Tanaka played by Jessica Williams. I'm not sure. And I don't know if Ray Tanaka is some other kind of reference, but uh yeah. So that was an interesting connection to I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. And if you, for whatever reason, haven't seen that episode, I Shot an Arrow Into the Air, uh go check it out. It's season one of the original series. Very good episode. I I really enjoyed that one. Um Yeah, so having said all of that, let's go ahead and go into Not All Men. I'm actually very excited to talk about this uh, episode. So... Plot summary according to CBS All Access is a meteor shower spreads infection across an entire town affecting some of the inhabitants more than others. So talent rundown for Not All Men. This episode stars uh, Tessa Farmiga as Annie Miller. She is, of course, she's the younger sister of Vera Farmiga, who's uh, well known from uh, the Conjuring movies, Bates Motel, all that. Um, Tessa Farmiga is a mainstay of the American Horror Story television franchise. Uh, she was also recently, I think it was last year, in The Nun, which was a spinoff of the Conjuring universe movies. Um, The Nun wasn't good. <laughs> it really wasn't. Um, it was just, it was, it just, felt kind of lifeless but she i mean she did fine in it um and then she was also recently last year as well she was in 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 an independent drama called what they had which was at heartland film festival last year which is a film festival here in indianapolis that i cover on obsessive viewer um i didn't get a chance to see it but it got huge huge acclaim um, around the festival circuit. I think it may have been like a Sundance darling or something, but, um, it is currently available to stream on Amazon prime against the, again, that's called what they had. And Tessa Farmiga has at least some kind of role in it. She's not a feature. Like she's not like, uh, it's not a leading role. I think she just has like a supporting role, but if you want to check her out in a movie that has a lot of a uh, good buzz around it, check out what they had on Amazon prime. Co-starring as Martha is Rhea Seahorn, and she's appeared in several episodes of Veep, which I think just ended its run, and um, she was also in, or is in, I don't know, I don't watch the show, uh, Better Call Saul as Kim Wexler. Um, I watched the first season of Better Call Saul. I, it was okay. Um, I love I love Breaking Bad, but just I didn't really care about uh, Better Call Saul. So anyway, um, Rhea Seahorn also ha- was in Franklin and Bash for a number of episodes. And then um, in addition to the cast, uh, co-starring as Mike is Ike Barinholtz, who I am a huge fan. I'm a huge, huge fan of Ike Barinholtz. He was on Mad TV for a number of years, starting in 2002, um, along with Jordan Peele, of course. But I first noticed Ike Barinholtz when he was in, like, he was a total scene stealer in The Mindy Project, which I think, I don't remember how many seasons he was on. I only watched, like, the first two seasons of that show or three seasons. Uh, but he was a scene stealer and, like, he was hilarious in every single scene. Um, 
and he's he's fantastic. Um, since then, he has had a huge career in comedy. Um, just uh, he's he's done kind of uh, supporting roles in Neighbors and Neighbors Two. Um, he was also in last year. He was also in uh, Blockers, which was one of my favorite movies of last year. Seriously, if you want to see a um, a teen sex comedy from the perspective of parents who are trying to stop the sex from the teens. Um, check out blockers. It's surprisingly poignant and surprisingly like progressive and sex positive and everything. It's, it's a really great comedy. I, I loved it. I've seen it probably like half a dozen times at this point. Um, Ike Barinholtz also wrote, produced, directed and starred in last year's the oath, uh, which actually has a bit of a twilight zone feel to it. It's kind of, uh, the plot summary according to IMDb is in a politically divided America, a man struggles to make it through the Thanksgiving holiday without destroying his family. So in this scenario or in this world, he, uh, Ike Barinholtz, is a very outspoken um, person against the current administration in the world of the movie and kind of the over overarching thing about the entire country in the oath is that the president has um, instituted a loyalty oath for all of the citizens, citizens. So people who sign the oath get perks and like tax rebates and stuff like a bunch of nonsense. And it's like, it causes a rift between the family at Thanksgiving. It's uh it's pretty good. I thought it was okay. Overall. Um, it, it's kind of a mix of comedy drama and thriller. Um, and it goes to some unexpected places. So I thought it was just okay, but I respect him so much for making it like he, like he, like I said, he wrote, produced, directed and starred in it. Um, it's just, it's so cool to see like kind of more supporting ish actors use their, their star to, um, their like rising star to fund and, and create something themselves, like, like all facets of it. I just think that that's really admirable. Uh, rounding out the cast um for this episode is luke kirby as dylan uh he was recently this year in m night Shyamalan's glass he has also appeared on uh, uh, amazon prime's the marvelous mrs mazel which i've heard great things about he's also been on hbo's the deuce and he was also recently i think this is last year as well in in another indie drama um little woods um he had a supporting role which also was at heartland film festival um it's weird little woods and what they had did not see either one of them but i covered the film festival so that's that says more about me i think i don't know but anyway uh luke kirby also had recurring a uh, recurring role in, on rectify which i think was on sundance tv which is apparently a channel i didn't know existed um and then rounding out his credits he was also in one episode of the canadian police procedural uh, okay <laughs> the canadian swat team procedural procedural oh my god i can't say that word procedural there we go um drama flashpoint which uh i'm gonna go ahead and just shoehorn in a a a plug for obsessive viewer but me and my friend kirsten who is a recurring co-host on obsessive viewer uh we're doing this little project where we are swapping tv shows for each other so uh every now and then we'll get together watch an episode or two of 
specific TV shows that like one that I picked for her and one that she picked for me. Currently, we're going through the first seasons of Flashpoint, and that's her show that she picked for me. And I'm forcing her to watch Lost, um, which is one of my favorite shows. So anyway, check that out, obsessiveviewer.com. Finally, rounding out Luke Kirby's credits, I want to just mention that I know him best from the movie Take This Waltz. Um, this movie came out. Oh, I don't remember when it came out. Like 2000. I don't know. Uh, late, like before 2010, I think. I don't know. But anyway, um, really incredible, like romantic drama. Um, also co-stars um, Seth Rogen, um, who is going to be in the season finale of the Twilight Zone. Anyway, take this waltz is incredible. It's about like human, like just just uh, it delves like it tells just a unique story about ch- a human attraction. And it's just, it's very like, like, I don't know. It, it kind of messed me up a little bit. (laughs) Um, as a fan of like rom-coms, take this waltz, which is a romantic drama. That's about like kind of forbidden attraction, but not romanticizing it. Like just having, it's, it's such, it's such an incredible movie to watch it. Watch, take this waltz, please. Um, okay. So that got away from me. Writer for this episode was Heather Ann Campbell, who previously wrote six degrees of freedom. And I mentioned some of her credits in, uh, the last bonus episode, I believe, but I do want to mention, uh, in addition to the stuff that I referenced in six degrees of freedom, she also was a writer for the Eric Andre show. Um, finally, director for this episode is uh, Christina Cho. She, uh, between 2005 and 2011, she directed several short films that, uh, some of which I think were pretty highly acclaimed. Um, but in t- uh, last year, she wrote and directed a film called Nancy, which I haven't seen, um, but it is available on Amazon Prime. Uh, the plot summary has me very intrigued. The plot of Nancy is... According to IMDb, Nancy becomes increasingly convinced she was kidnapped as a child when she meets a couple whose daughter went missing 30 years ago. Reasonable doubts give way to willful belief. Um, like I said, Christina Cho uh, wrote and directed that film. It is on Amazon Prime. It's called Nancy. I am going to hopefully check it out at some point when I don't have tons of podcasting I have to do. <laughs> um, that is all. That is all my own doing. So just to be clear. So, uh, let's talk about Not All Men. Um, this is a review that I've been looking forward to, um, and I, I probably have more notes about this episode than I have any other episode of this season of The Twilight Zone. So, with that in mind, my initial thoughts on Not All Men is that I really liked the concept of the episode, and I was so certain that the alt-right Trump supporter viewers who've been kind of having a field day with trashing the new Twilight Zone for its social justice warrior messages or whatever, its progressive uh, politics and everything – um, I'm so sure that they will have or are having a field day hating on this episode. But I appreciate the story it tells, the perspective it takes, and the conversation that it should, in theory, bring out among people. However, it in my notes I put, it really shits the bed in the last 10 to 15 minutes. So let me go into my review of Not All Men. So right off the bat, the first image we see is the tank of water or the the tank of the water cooler at Annie's office. And that's kind of preparing us for the misdirection that there's something in the water uh, from the meteorites. And we're introduced to Annie who uh, she has like a copy of the Art of War on her desk, kind of, I guess, to signal us that she's uh, that she's really a 
quote-unquote jobs worth, as mentioned by Dylan later. Uh, so basically, she just takes her job very seriously. And then um, as we're kind of going through these shots like of her desk and everything, we're overhearing parts of a conversation on a phone. Uh, but before we get to that, we do get a close-up shot of a post-it note that's uh, on her computer monitor that says, Call Dr. Romero... at 10.15. And I kind of wonder if Dr. Romero is a reference to George Romero, which would be kind of fitting since the nature of this episode is very much kind of zombie movie influenced uh, to an extent. And there's also our 10.15 reference this episode. And I like the subtlety of that. I I don't even know if I'd say subtlety because it's, you know, it's in the full frame of it, but it's just very, it's not, it's not tied to the plot or anything. It's just set dressing. It's just there for a second and then it's gone. Um, and I had this theory that I forgot to mention when I reviewed six uh, degrees of freedom, but I came up with this ridiculous theory that it, it's more wishing than anything. Cause there's no way in hell that this is going to happen. But I had this weird theory that I tweeted about at OV Anthology Pod regarding the recurrence of 1015 in almost every episode. Um, I just think it would be really cool if, like, what if all the references to 1015 were winks at the audience hinting at something special on October 15th? So, I like, my rationale is think of, like, you know, Doctor Who and... uh uh, really British shows is, are what's most common with it, but having like Christmas episodes or Christmas specials, like Doctor Who is famous for having like a Christmas special, I think almost every year. I haven't watched Doctor Who in several years, but, um, just one off Christmas specials. And how cool would it be if like the 1015 references were just, um, just nods to a, what would, what would turn out to be a special surprise Halloween episode of the Twilight Zone that would surprise drop on October 15th. Um, again, it would never happen. Like that is never, there is no chance that that is what the recurrence of 1015 is. That's, that's, there's no way that that's what, uh, the importance of 1015 is. But I just think in theory, that would be so cool. Like how, how awesome would that be? Um, I don't know, but I, uh, regarding the 1015 reference, I do like the idea of each season kind of establishing some strange sequence of numbers and then having running Easter eggs throughout each episode. Like each season would have a different set of numbers. Um, I just think that would be kind of fun. Just, just, I don't know, kind of fun. It would kind of take away from, not, not take away, but it would kind of, um, introduce some change to well, I mean I guess this is all stuff that's happened this season too but like it's a good like uh counter counterbalance to all of the references to the original series and everything um all the freaking Whipple uh references we get um yeah so anyway um Annie's on a phone call with Phil who we we meet later and this entire first scene is really magnificent at setting up the kind of lack of gender equality in the workplace. So Annie's phone call, she's she's kind of being talked down to in a sense about this assignment that she's been given at work. And um, she says that she just wasn't sure if he wants her to work it because she's only been there a couple months. And Phil says it isn't rock and science, which that alone isn't necessarily like a gender thing. It just establishes how stressful the job is for Annie and kind of just introduces us to this whole like, okay, she doesn't get treated like an equal per se. Um, so it's not necessarily like a gender equality thing. It's just like an establishment of, okay, Annie is, Annie is in a job that is high stress and she does not, she is not talked to as necessarily a peer or her, her boss is a little overbearing. That's, that's how I would say it. So, 
Um, immediately after that, Dylan comes up, and that's our introdu- introduction to Luke Kirby. And he tells her that she did, like he overhears the conversation, and he says, "You don't have to say yes to to every assignment that Phil gives you." And she explains that she's uh, that she just doesn't want to seem like she's not a team player. And she says that uh, she kind of like she kind of just throws in there that she's in charge of setting up the placebos for a test that they're about to start. And that's, or it's like medicated lip balm is what it was. Um, and that's an interesting bit of foreshadowing since the meteorites are placebos, spoiler alert. Um, so Dylan's immediate response to this is he just says, I'll talk to Phil like very sternly, very quickly and very directly. And she says no, like she says no, you don't have to do that. But just the fact that he says, I'll talk to Phil, it's got this like soft misogyny underlining it. Like, um, like his, his reaction, like in his, the subtext of that is like him saying, I'll talk to Phil is the equivalent of him saying, I can see this woman is struggling. So I, a man will get it fixed. And I just really like the subtlety of that. Like to be frank, the show hasn't, it's had some subtle things, some subtle kind of underlying thing, uh, underlying kind of qualities to the, to the, uh, messages and, and themes that it's been portraying. But this is like really well done dialogue and it carries through throughout like three quarters of the episode. So I do want to highlight here, cause this is going to be kind of the, a good entry point to one of my big issues with the, with the episode is that as Dylan is talking to Annie, there's a woman that's working at a cubicle in the background that the camera focuses on when Dylan says that he'll talk to Phil. Not sure what that was about. Um, according to IMDb, it looks like maybe her character's name is Monica Jones, but I mean, she's not in the episode. Like it's just, that's the only scene. And like, I don't know, the camera like pays special attention to her. And I don't know, maybe there was a deleted scene or an entire subplot that was deleted. And like that, that kind of feeling of kind of anachronistic kind of mistakes or anachronistic quality, um, or inconsistent really, is that it's kind of a running issue throughout the entire episode. And I'll get to more of that later, but like here it's like, it's kind of jarring. Um, yeah, so I just thought that was kind of odd. So Dylan then asks Annie out to watch the meteor shower and he's a little pushy about it, but Annie eventually accepts and, um, yeah, so we get that introduction. So Annie, the next scene is Annie arriving at Dylan's house. She checks her makeup and everything. Um, (laughs) so this moment where they're watching the meteor, the meteor shower, um, first of all, dude has lobsters and wine. Like he's kind of going all out. Um, and I think it's kind of funny. Well, okay. Um, he's going all out. So I, I think that that's interesting. Um, or whatever, but, uh, at the, after that, or after that, like a few minutes into the scene, I think it's kind of funny, how, like the vision, and this is, this is a uh, prefaces by saying that this is totally nitpicking, did not detract from the episode for me, but it just felt kind of just goofy that, um, it was like the visual effects clearly weren't considered for this scene or they were, the visual effects were developed independent of this scene, of this scene. That's my theory. Uh, because Dylan asks if she saw the meteorite and she walks over and as she's staring into the sky, she says, where at the exact moment, like a bunch of them are clearly visible in the sky. <laughs> and, 
Dylan, like Dylan kind of moves in closer to her and he politely asks if it's okay for him to put his arm around her. Um, and I thought that was an interesting moment and kind of sweet. Um, in like at that moment, we don't have the kind of tense foreboding yet. Um, so the meteorites are flying across the sky and it's clear immediately that they're, um, kind of crashing down. So one hits the water tower and, uh, then one flies overhead. Um, I do like that it hits the water tower because I, I like that that kind of further, further kind of subtly leads us to think that the water is really going to be contaminated. So Dylan and Annie go to where one of the meteorites, um, fell to, um, earth and, um, okay. So Dylan picking up the meteorite just freaked me out in and of itself. Um, I'm fascinated by space. I, I love it. I love the idea of space travel and, and like the truth is out there, all that nonsense. Um, I'm fascinated by that, but there is no freaking way I would ever pick up something that I literally watched fall to the earth from space. And like, there's no way I would do that. No matter how badly I want superpowers, um, there's no way that I'll pick that up. Um, so as they're walking away, I did notice that the kind of ambient noises in that scene kind of sounded a lot like the, um, beeps, I guess you would say of JJ Abrams, Star Trek movies. Um, and that may also be in the original series too. I don't, I don't remember, but I, I equate them to, um, the Abrams Star Trek movies. It's kind of a combination of like the ambient noise and the frog ribbiting and everything. Um, it just, it just really gave me the, uh, um, flashbacks to the sound design in JJ Abrams uh, Star Trek movies. So, uh, yeah. So Annie and Dylan are back at Dylan's house that he's got a fire going, the wine's pouring and he starts playing a Lionel Richie record. <laughs> um, which, okay. At this point, like, okay. At this point, nothing, nothing horrible has happened. Like at this point, they are just on a normal date. And I have to ask, like, okay, I'm kind of curious. At this point, does Dylan have game or is he like really, uh, laying it on just a little bit too thick? Like, I genuinely don't know if we're supposed to think like, oh, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of suave or, or whatever, or if we're supposed to take it as like, like really you're playing hello by Lionel Richie. <laughs> like, come on, dude. Um, I, I don't know if that's supposed to be too much or if it's supposed to communicate that he's got, you know, that he's, that he's got game, I guess would be the only way to describe that. So he sits down on the couch and he tells her that he's been wanting to ask her out for a while and that she's really cute when she's being a job's worth. And he mentions that a job's worth is where, you know, she takes, uh, she, takes her job very seriously. And that's kind of more casual, like misogyny, like a running theme throughout this entire episode is that she's not taken seriously in the workplace. And even though he is complimenting her or in his own way, kind of giving her a compliment or, or, you know, telling her that she's, you know, cute. Um, it's also at the expense of like the under underlying message being like, I don't take you seriously as an employee at the company that I work for as well. Um, because I just think I'm just completely taking, um, just an objective view of, of your appearance and, uh, when you're, you know, at work. So, um, that's kind of the start. And I, I love how smoothly the dynamic shifts in the scene. Like they start making out and then she stops it. But after that moment, that's when Luke Kirby's creepiness 
starts to subtly come out and it's and it grows as the scene progresses like he t- he says that their night has been magical and and cosmic and all that and Annie is trying to politely end the evening and here's what I love boiled down, like this scene is what I love about this episode like it's boiled down, like everything about the scene boiled down is the epitome of what I love about this episode because at this moment this is a realistic depiction of the tension that builds in these types of situations it's it's honestly, it's, it's stuff that women go through, uh, when dating in the real world. And as the episode demonstrates, it's often the man that comes out ahead in every kind of, um, intimidating encounter with dating. And there's a very real feeling of escalating tension throughout this scene in which you begin to legitimately fear for Annie's safety. And it's just, it's so well done and so, um, smooth in, in the way that it just escalates throughout the scene. And as the tension kind of mounts, there's this backtracking and gaslighting that Dylan does when he realizes that things aren't going to go the way that he expects them to. And I think that that's incredible. Like, kudos to the writing and kudos to Luke, Luke Kirby for being really disturbing in this scene. So, but what I mean by him backtracking and gaslighting Annie is that he, um, when he realizes that it's, it's not going to happen, he says, wait, like, okay, first, first he is like his, um, his Hail Mary is that he says in the creepiest tone, he says, I'll do you first. And then like almost immediately after that, he gets up and kind of advances on her and he's like, wait, did you think I was trying to fuck you? Um, and it's just that type of backtracking and gaslighting and, and just like walking back his actions is so just disturbing because it's, it's with this intensity that's, that's really potent. And I feel like this is just really strong dialogue because the pretense of their date just completely disappears in this scene effortlessly transitions into a potentially dangerous situation um, between, and I put in my notes, between Annie and co-worker McBlueballs. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just love how this scene is written. Annie is so obviously uncomfortable. And Okay, okay, let me, let me backtrack. So, co-worker McBlueballs, yes, he is upset. So, uh, I love how the scene is written because... At this moment, Annie is so obviously uncomfortable and somewhat threatened as well, yet she is constantly trying to be polite and courteous and non-confrontational. And this is despite the fact that his actions have directly made her uncomfortable and he should, in that case, be, you know, uh, not a dick. Um, so let me play a clip from this scene just to demonstrate what I'm referring to. So here's a clip from this. You don't want to? What? You're not into it? I'll do you first. Um, I'm gonna head out. Wait, what did I do wrong? Nothing. You, you did nothing wrong. Wait. Are you thinking I'm trying to fuck you? Right now? Um, well, okay. No, but I, 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 I well, you're just, acting like I am, Dylan. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm really it, not. That Alan. kind of hurts, Dylan. Stop it. I, everything's cool. I need, I, I need you to listen to me. I, I really like you. Look, we work together. I, I, I want to see you again. It's just, I, 
you know, what's what's the rush? Okay, so yeah, just incredible writing and incredible acting from Tessa Farmiga and and Luke Kirby. Um, and what I want to say is so so disturbing and so well demonstrated here is that this scene. This scene alone isn't a Twilight Zone moment. It's like a real experience for many women in in the world, like in in our country um, specifically. Like the dating world is filled with this type of thing. And like I have – I have a lot of like female friends who have had like these types of experiences and everything and I've – I've heard just horror stories um, about this this type of thing and it's like it is – it is legitimately scary for, for women dating out there. So it's just, it's crazy. And it's such a well done scene. So, so Annie leaves and she hears Dylan freak out and like that puts this whole scene into uh, an interesting perspective and kind of makes it feel like up until the point where we get uh Peel's narration, like that, like that, portion of this episode feels like its own self-contained short film in and of itself. It has like a clear like progression of plot and like just seeing him freak out and and destroy like the record player and stuff um as she's leaving is just like an interesting like pin on that on that moment or in that like um, hypothetical short film. Uh, just very well done. So then we get Peel's narration to bring us into the episode, and I'm going to play that here. Meet Annie Miller. Annie has always seen the world as a place where she could maintain control if she just played by the rules. But tonight marks the beginning of a change, both in her and in the idyllic town she's always called home. On the eve of her sister's birthday... Annie will be forced to contend with an event well out of her control and a simmering violence about to boil over into the Twilight Zone. Okay, so, and of course, like I've said, I've complained before and I'll complain next time. Um, Just the formulaic way that the, the narrations have kind of been written. Like, just, I, just, all I ask, all I ask is that if okay so we've it's been um renewed for season two um hopefully if it gets more seasons that would be great but i would just hope that from now on if they never start a narration with meet character name i will be so happy with anything that they do um because that gets so on my nerves and i can't like it's 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 not like I shouldn't have this reaction to that. Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel that like annoyed by it because it's just, it's essentially it's three words um, that appear in, I think like maybe four or five of the seven episodes that we were at at this point. Um, So ultimately it's not that big of a deal, but just the repetition of it is so like annoying because I know that like a big part of the original series was just the interesting narration and the interesting writing in the narration. And also part of me just knows that like it's the beginning of the episode. Like this is where you're trying to hook the audience in and you're following this formula of, of writing the narration and it just doesn't, it just feels so formulaic and just lazy. It's just, I don't like it. Um, so hopefully they kind of improve that in the, in the next season. So, after the opening credits, it's the next day, 
and we get Annie getting ready for work, and we have a radio that's giving us some exposition about the town's reaction to the meteorites. And that kind of brings up one of the... I would say one of the failures of the episode as a whole is that it doesn't adequately set up the town of Newberry for my tastes. Like, Peel references it as an idyllic town, and the radio host mentions the town by name, but we don't get much in the way of actually seeing the town and its inhabitants until all hell breaks loose. So at that moment when everything is going going um, crazy, it just doesn't feel like it was it's been properly set up and like, I don't care about the town because I don't feel like a town has been introduced to me. I just feel like this is a general area near where Annie is. So the radio also, I didn't catch any like Easter eggs in, in the radio uh, announcements or anything, but I did want to highlight that the radio references superstitions that are cropping up around the town. And it ends with the host saying that he got word from a local hospital that there was a baby born during the shower and the parents are going to celebrate by, and then that's when it trails off. Like even the closed captions don't have what he says, but it kind of like, it kind of sounds like he says they're going to eat something. Um, and I kind of thought for a second, like, are they going to? are they going to eat the baby? Um, but my guess is like, if I were to, if I were to be hired to write the rest of that sentence, um, in the episode, my guess would be that he would be baptized, that the, that the kid, the baby would be baptized in meteor water. That would be my guess. So, um, but, but the more important takeaway from this scene from the next day is that Annie notices that her arm is bruised from when Dylan grabbed her and like she just kind of looks at it in kind of horror like it's kind of her processing like this thing happened to me last night and she doesn't like as it's kind of um hinted at later she just doesn't know how to react to that because it's like it's a terrible experience and she like it, she doesn't know how to respond to that and that's it feels like such an authentic kind of reaction to that type of situation in the real world um and the next scene is her at work with long sleeves and i just think that that was just just those like few seconds were just powerful like visuals because you know like she's wearing long sleeves specifically because she's hiding bruises and it's just such a tragic kind of kind of thing or such a such a sad thing um and it's especially like, and then this is me, maybe I'm projecting a little bit in, in this moment here, but like, it's especially like sad and it especially speaks volumes when you consider that it would be easy for him to argue that there was no assault or anything despite the bruises on, on her arm. Like the way that the scene was constructed. And again, it is such an incredible sequence in the, in this episode, but the way it's constructed is like, you could see like the man of the scene being like, you know, we just, we made out a little bit. If she didn't want to do it. She didn't want to do anything. Um, I, you know, asked her if she, uh, wanted to reconsider and then she left. And then now I'm on the market for a new, uh, record player. Um, and like just that type of thing would be, would just be like something people would go with. I, w- I would think, um, I don't know. So maybe I'm putting too much into that, into that moment. But anyway, um, Annie gets to her desk and Phil comes up and that's our introduction to Phil. And he speaks somewhat condescendingly to her as he mentions that he is going to partner her up with Dylan on a project. And just like, I love Tessa Farmiga's response to this. Like her reaction is like so diplomatic and even keeled despite 
the fact that she's like horrified at the like at this shitty situation that's being made even shittier by this complete power imbalance that she has from a gender perspective. Um, I just think that that was just a really good scene. Um, then that's, that was a quick scene. So we get to the, uh, yoga scene, I guess. And she's outside the yoga studio. And this is really the only scene that we get that establishes Newberry as a community. Um, aside from being like, you know, filled with raving lunatics. And even then, like our attention isn't on, the nature of the town or isn't on like the, Oh, look at this quaint little town. It's more just our attention is driven toward the strange behavior of the men uh, around Annie. And I just wish there was a little bit more world building to pay off the last act of the episode as bonkers and ridiculous as the last act of the episode is. I feel like I would have maybe felt a little bit better about it if we had context for the town of Newberry. Um, so some of the stuff that she sees um, as she's kind of going to her car is she sees this man that's putting his hand in in his wife's back pocket, just squeezing her ass as, as they're walking outside of the yoga studio. And then... Um, <laughs> Then there's a man struggling to get the straw in the cup, and that was pretty ridiculous and heavy-handed and stupid. Like, it's just a Neanderthal, like, oh, me put straw in cup, so me drink. And it's just, it's so dumb. I, I hated it. Um, but Easter egg, that was a um, Busy Bee Diner cup. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there was a man that was struggling with the trunk that's a little bit, a little bit crazy, but it's like, that fits a lot more than dumbass trying to put a straw in his cup um and then there was a guy that was honking for her to move like those like the man with the trunk and the and the man trying to get her to move are a nice touch and at this point at this point really this episode could be viewed as completely straightforward in a sense like annie in this scene is dealing with the events of the night before with dylan and because of what happened you could argue like her perception is heightened and everything makes her seem on edge like you could you could take away the meteor shower and the plotline of men going crazy and just see this as a woman who is still processing this, um, this dangerous situation she found herself in, uh, just like 12 hours ago, um, by having this heightened sense of like, like the actions of men around her because she's, you know, on edge because of what happened. Like you could, you could read it that way. And it's, it's still a really incredibly well-drawn scene despite the dumbass trying to get the straw in his cup. Um, so she, she leaves and we're introduced to Cole after that, as she arrives at her sister's house. And so Cole is Annie's nephew and it's a good scene. Like there's some really good chemistry between the two uh actors here and it was uh, although I will say like the writing suffered here cuz it was kind of hard for me to put together that he is Martha and Mike's son. Like I feel like there's something missing there like she, like he addresses her as Auntie Annie, but I'm like I don't like I that's all that we get from that. It's just it's a weird disconnect there. Um I don't know. I just feel like it could have been made more clear that, you know, he was the son of Martha and Mike. 
Um, but yeah, so and they have a cute like back and forth. Like Cole, he's a, like a 15 year old kid, and he says that he wants to kick kick the guy's ass that that uh, went, got weird on her. And it's tongue in cheek. Like like she asks like Why do you guys always want to kick ass? And then he, he's I love the way he says that. He's like Because we're dudes. And it's just it's really tongue in cheek and fun. Um, yeah, so then we get the dinner scene, and this is the introduction of Mike and Martha and Olivia, who is married to Phil, um, and so all of them are in attendance at, at this dinner. That is a birthday dinner for Martha. And so there, okay, so there is a goofy back and forth in this scene with Ike Barinholtz and Rhea Seahorn that I think is just super fun. Um, like they go out of their way, like they're a married couple in the scene and they go out of the way to compliment each other and frequently say, I love you. And it's almost like they have like what I put into it is that I get, I got the sense that they had like a rocky marriage and had to have like couples counseling at some point. And so that's why they're constantly reassuring each other of, of their love for each other because that's what they were told to do in therapy. All that stuff that I just pour, poured into the scene, there's none of that in the episode, but it's just, it, without that kind of, um, idea or that read on it, it just sounds really bizarre the way that they b- behave. Um, I just want to mention here, Ike Barinholtz is a freaking treasure. Um, he's, he's fantastic. I love Ike Barinholtz. He and Martha in this scene, um, he and Rhea Seahorn in the scene tell a story about uh, Mike trying to talk to a chef in France, and like it's a it's a cute back and forth. Like Martha's trying to finish his his sentences, and and he's like, "Oh, I love you," and all that. Um, but then after the story, Annie mentions that like he's like she's like, "Why didn't you just send Martha?" And her French is amazing. And Mike says. Um, that he couldn't have said his sent his wife into the lion's den or the den of Laos or something. I don't know. Um, that is like a French, a French restaurant. Um, it's cute and lighthearted, but it's also in keeping with the overall theme of men talking down to women in their own unique ways, like this casual misogyny. And what's interesting here is, what's more interesting here I would say is Martha's response to that. Like she says that Mike is her big brave hero. So she's kind of complacent with the way things are because Mike's a good man, even though like this is very casual, like subtle, like, um, misogyny, uh, to an extent. And, that's followed up with Phil getting called out by Olivia for mansplaining, um, the, the, like correcting what, what the food was that they just ate or whatever. And in theory, I love that Phil gets called out for mansplaining by Olivia, but on one hand, the character, like, I love that in theory, as I said, um, the character, but the character kind of becomes one note throughout the episode. Like that's all the character does in like the three or four scenes that he's in. And the comment about mansplaining itself feels just a little bit shoehorned in. Like, is he technically mansplaining? Because Mike is the one that brought up the eggplant terrain that he's talking about. Um, like, it's not like, it's not like one of the women at the table said like, Oh, that's a really great, um, whatever. That's a really great hors d'oeuvre. And Mike's like, well, actually, uh, this is, this is actually that it's like, he's, he's breaking a silence by like, I, okay. Like I genuinely don't see how that is like, like what it is in the episode is mansplaining something. Like, I don't see how that is mansplaining because, I don't know. Like, I don't know. And, and I consider myself to be a, a like feminist. I'm, you know, whatever. Um, 
But sometimes that kind of shutdown just bothers me. <laughs> like in certain situations, like this one, the the guy is just trying to make conversation about the food. Sure, it's obnoxious, it's dull, and of no interest to anyone. But just because he is a know-it-all doesn't mean he's mansplaining it because he's not, like it's not, like I said, it's not like one of the women at the table like tried to like comment on the food and then he's just like, well, actually it's this and uh, this is why I'm smarter than all the women. Um, it's just more like, okay, uh, Mike mentioned something about the food when, when, uh, Martha got the skillet. Um, and now he's kind of following up on that and he's getting called out for mansplaining. I just, I don't, I don't know. I just felt like that was a little, a little forced. Um, but but then as soon as she says that, uh, Mike tells Phil to quote unquote, get woke. And when I saw that scene, when I heard those, that, those two words, I feel like I could hear the heads of people who have at this point hate been hate watching the show, um, for its social justice warrior, like tendencies and stuff. I feel like I could hear their heads exploding with anger. Um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's kind of, I don't know, kitschy to talk about woke, being woke and everything and get woke. I don't know. It's, and it's played for kind of a laugh, but it's just like, I, I could, I could hear the angry tweets, uh, come in from, uh, certain people who will watch this show. Um, uh, but then again, if you're seven episodes into the season and you're still shocked by the tone of the message and the, the way that the politics lean, uh, in a certain direction, then it's kind of your own fault for, for still watching at this point. So, um, okay. So, so I think Martha asks Phil about, uh, Annie's new job because Annie is working at the company that Phil works at and he is her supervisor, um, as it's kind of, uh, implied. And at this moment, I, 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 I thought this was really another example of really strong writing because Phil refers to her saying that she's the, I think he says something to the effect of the, uh, that her being the best entry level girl they've had. And it's just, I love, like, I love the way that this recurs throughout the episode, like people referring to Annie as girl rather than like woman or person. Um, it's just another like escalation of this casual misogyny that's, that's, that's occurring, like that's rampant throughout this episode. And, um, I just, I just love that how casual it is and how just naturalistic it is that he's just like, oh yeah, she's, she's a, she's a good girl at this job. It's just like, it's so kind of borderline demeaning and just condescending and just like, it shows that there's no respect for her as, you know, um, a member of, of, uh, his team and, and everything. So, um, I just love how that recurs throughout the episode. And I'll point out the other times that it is brought up. Um, another example of casual misogyny that is developed well in this episode is here in that scene. Phil mentions teaming her up with Dylan. And when he mentions that, he mentions like, Oh, Dylan is, uh, the best project manager that they have. And, and they're going to, he's going to team her up with him on this project. Um, and that's immediately, immediately viewed as a potential romantic connection and not at all about her career with the company. And I just thought that was really, um, really, uh, interesting in terms of just writing and commentary on, on 
you know, women in the workplace. So at this point, dinner is interrupted by the angry neighbor with a lawnmower. And I'm going to talk about some issues I have in here in a bit, but I do want to mention that when they go outside and the, um, the neighbor is having kind of a temper tantrum over the lawnmower. Um, Phil starts um, mansplaining the smell and look of the water. Again, it's kind of funny. He's a know-it-all and he like, that's what he does, but it is so one note throughout this episode. Like, Every scene he's in, it's like, well, actually, this is this, this and this. And it's just so, it just, it feels so goofy and weird. Um, but Martha mentions here that they have to leave because, quote, Robin is going to be waiting. And I feel like that was just really clunky for my taste. Like, suddenly the women, all the women at this dinner have entirely different plans from the dinner. Like, I wish there was something to establish that earlier in the episode. And again, there's the awkward I love use between Mike and Martha that feel kind of forced. And this is where I kind of wondered, kind of similar to um, the woman in the cubicle uh, in the opening scene, I wonder if there's some kind of deleted or extended or uh, deleted or extended scene or entirely different subplot for this episode because the women all leave suddenly and then mike reiterates that the water stinks and the neighbor gets really testy and then the scene just ends like there's no like that's all we get with the neighbor and everything and it's just it's over so and then it cuts to a bar where martha annie olivia and who i'm assuming is robin uh are at like a bar having kind of a ladies night so the birthday dinner that like they had like a gathering for for martha is suddenly a ladies night outing with her and her friends. And it just, I don't know. It just, it was jarring. I was like, wait, like wh- where, did, how did we get from there to here? Um, and it just felt like it was very sloppy for my taste. I, I really, it really took me a second to kind of catch up and, and get back into the episode. So at the bar, Robin is telling the story about her and her husband having sex in their car and it visibly makes Annie uncomfortable. And, and like, she doesn't want to, you know, talk about that kind of thing because she just had a, a traumatic experience the night before. Um, as far as Robin telling that story, I don't quite get that. Um, like I think Robin is saying that her husband kept asking if it was okay for them to be having sex in the car. Um, and I don't know what that is supposed to be conveying. If anything, I just felt like that was weirdly out of place. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. So they see a group of men, um, at the bar being loud and disruptive. And they point out that one of them is Zeke the Geek, who was picked on profusely throughout high school. Um, and I think it's Martha says, like, some things never change, and, like, he's being goaded into doing shots with pieces of the meteorite in it. Um, and okay, <laughs> that's really dumb. <laughs> like, that, that is the dumbest thing. <laughs> one of the dumbest things in this episode. But sadly, it's also kind of believable. Like, I could see, like uh, super like masculine men or people just are, that are just really crazy. Um, taking this experience and being like, Oh, I'm going to do shots with this, with this piece of rock from outer space. It's, it's like, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's super dumb, but slightly believable to an extent. Um, but yeah, I do think that it's weird that all of this happens like immediately after the meteor shower. And there's an argument to be made that, well, the episode is kind of seeding the idea that, okay, the meteorites are causing this, this disturbing behavior. But 
you know, obviously at the end it's revealed that they're not. So it's just kind of, it's weird in that context of the whole episode. So then to kind of make matters worse, they see Dylan at the bar or at the restaurant. It looks like he's kind of chatting up these two women at a table. So he's, you know, um, unfazed by the, um, events of the previous night and Annie gets very uncomfortable and, I don't know. Martha gets all girly and excited. Um, and I thought that was really interesting as a, as a narrative device or, or characterization because she's already been established as a woman who is kind of complacent with this, um, with this type of kind of casual, like not, I guess I've been saying casual misogyny, but you know, like just this, the station of women in, in life, in this culture and everything, like she's fine with it. And she, um, I think, I think someone else at the table, uh, suggests inviting Dylan over and Annie just strongly objects. And Martha says, come on, I bet he's, I bet he's great in bed. And Annie says, not everything is about sex. And Martha's like, well, it isn't. And it's just like, I get that. Like as a, as a dude, I've had conversations with, with like friends of mine that uh, basically boil down to this. Like, oh, I bet she's, I bet she's great in bed. And it's like, I, okay, fine. Not everything's about sex though. And then, like, I've had that exact conversation with people. Um, so when they're like objectifying, you know, women and everything. So Annie goes outside and she sk- sees Cole and his boyfriend, Steve. And again, I don't think there, there's no indication of who Steve is. Like, like there's like Steve had not been referenced at all earlier throughout the, at all in the episode. But Annie says, Oh, this must be Steve. As if we, we know like there's a Steve. Um, and it's a minor nitpick, nitpick, but it's also indicative of kind of the bigger issues I have with the episode. But I feel like there were some very sloppy cuts in the editing of this episode as a whole. And maybe the story lost some of its cohesiveness as a result. For an example, um, this whole scene, (laughs) um, it feels just really sloppy. Like Cole and Steve are getting beer. Annie is kind of playing like the cool aunt to them. And, like, I have to gripe about the writing here specifically. Like, here's a clip of what they say, the back and forth that they have with Annie and Cole and Steve. Bold move. You know, your mom's right inside. Yeah, just for a friend. You know how many times your mom and I use that line? <laughs> I won't tell if you won't. Hey, thanks for being cool. Just don't drink in here. Nah, we're hanging on my dad's boat. The Achilles, down by the docks. I wish I was 15. <laughs> Be safe, okay? Yeah. Bye, Andy. So, I don't like that, because Annie tells them not to drink it there, yet she's outside of a clearly, like, restaurant bar. Like, there's no way these 15-year-old kids can go into the bar to drink the beer that they have, because they are 15 years old. And... Then, like, Steve just offers up information that is not pertinent to the conversation. He's just like, oh, don't worry, we're going to go to the, go to the docks, which is fine. But then he's like, oh, we're going to drink on my dad's, uh, boat, the Achilles. It's at the dock. Like, like, oh my God, he's just offering this information specifically because it's going to come into play later. And it's just like, it's so sloppy and just awkward. Um, so we get back into the bar and the guys are still shooting the stones and Zeke is being cut off by the bartender. Um, and the women are watching and like, they're commenting on how, uh, like, Oh, it's so sad when, when men can't hold their, hold their booze. Um, 
and I want to mention, I didn't realize this until I was listening to the episode today at work. Um, I think the bartender offers Zeke a fresh glass of water on the house. And like, it's, this just a really weird, like what places, what place charges for water? I, I don't know that, that just kind of stood out to me and I was like, what, like what? But, uh, anyway, moving forward, that's neither here nor there. It's a, it's a nitpick, but Annie asks, like referring to the men in the bar, like what's wrong with them? And Martha replies that it's quote unquote, just assholes being assholes. And that's after she comments on how sad it is when people can't hold their liquor. And I just, I just again, Martha is just this kind of complacent person in this, in this episode. Like she's like, okay, well, it's just men being men. It's, you know, it's just what they do. Um, but then a fight breaks out among the men and Annie tells them that they should leave. She's starting to get freaked out. And then Zeke freaks out, um, to kind of instigate everything in, in the bar or escalate everything in the bar. And honestly, this is where the episode really kind of like, like really starts to lose me just a little bit. Like that close up of Zeke looking like his head is about to explode comes across as so silly and over the top in an episode that in 19 minutes has very well established itself as a serious look at casual and not so casual misogyny in the effect of sexual assault on women in the lasting effect that it has on them in a world where that's the kind of dominated by men and to- toxic masculinity. Like it's a shift that I don't feel really fits with what has come before it. Like this, just the shot of Zeke, just like looking like he's constipated as hell trying to drop a deuce in this middle of, in the middle of this restaurant. It's so weird. And I don't know. And so the fighting escalates and all the men join in. They all look like zombies with a hint of like kind of roid ragey vibes, which I think is also kind of why, um, the post and note in the opening shot had, Dr. Romano or Dr. Romero, not Dr. Romano, um, Dr. Romero, um, because it's, it's very much, uh, reminiscent of, you know, uh, zombie movies and everything. So, so then as everything is breaking out in, in the bar, um, here we get this quick shot of a man in a red hat leaving the building. And it's very obviously supposed to be a, a, a MAGA hat. And I really like this little Easter egg. It's quick. It's subtle, at least by this show's standards. And I don't know. It just, it worked for me in this moment, at least. I'll get to more of that later because again, kind of a running theme. And I hate to say this because I've been somewhat of a champion of this show for, for better or worse throughout, throughout the season, but it's indicative of what, why the show like, like this series does not know how to just let something breathe. Like it has to double down on so much stuff, including these, these Easter eggs. It's like, I don't know. It just seems like in, it seems like in the writer's room or in the, in the production, like in the editing bay of the episodes, um, it's like, they're saying like, oh, that's a really good, like, that's a really good, like Easter egg here. Um, that'll really be cool. Let's go ahead and duplicate this numerous times throughout the episode, or let's put this in a full, like, like, like the, let's put this front and center in a, in a wide or a tight shot where it's taking over the entire frame so that we know that they don't miss it. Like, 
we're in the era of streaming. We watch these episodes no- numerous times. <laughs> like, just let something breathe. Let people pick it up. Let people discuss these Easter eggs for people who don't catch them the first time they see them or anything. Like, there's no need to double down on them and just, just really shoehorn in these Easter eggs that are just so prominently, prominently done. Um, in each episode. So anyway, Annie and Martha leave the restaurant and that was also problematic to me because, okay, Olivia and Robin stay behind to pick up the check. It's a very quick line. Like, Oh, we'll get the check and everything. And then Annie and Martha leave. And again, this is a big complaint I have with this episode, the structure, the production of it and everything. Um, I have no way to confirm what I'm about to say at all. Like, I, I have no idea if this is what the case is. This is strictly my interpretation of the way this episode was, was presented in its final form. Um, this whole ladies night bar scene feels so much like it was either something that was reshot and added to the episode when it was almost done or part of an entirely like alternate subplot that they spliced in or it was something to replace an alternate subplot that they decided to cut out. Um, and here's what I mean by that. Or like this, the, these are the reasons why I feel that way. The women suddenly say they're going to a bar to meet up with Robin when they're outside with the neighbor, when their birthday dinner was just interrupted. Like it comes out of nowhere. It's just, it seems like, okay, maybe it's just like very quick, like insert shot for a reshoot, um, to kind of shoehorn in this alternate subplot that they have or the subplot that they're replacing for whatever reason. Um, and then the reference to Zeke the geek in the bar feels inconsequential because he doesn't really show up anywhere the rest of the episode, except for one spot that I think is him, um, that well, I'll definitely talk about it, um, because it was ridiculous. Um, and then also Luke Kirby's appearance in the scene in the restaurant or in the, in the bar feels like they had to shoot his scenes separately. Like, it seems like those were pickup shots that like, cause there's like, you don't have any dialogue from him there. It's shot from away, um, from an, another side of the room. There are no other like featured actors in that, in any of the scenes that he's in, like they don't share the screen. Um, it's just all from the viewpoint of the women at the table. Um, and he doesn't interact with anyone. Like there's no dialogue. Cause we don't like, we don't, we only see him interacting with like extras. And it just feels like just really out of place in the grand scheme of things. Um, so, and then also, uh, so yeah, anyway. Um, so again, uh, to reiterate an earlier scene, Annie tells Cole and Steve not to drink it in there, implying that these two 15 year olds are going to take a drink, take beer into a bar. um, and then finally, only Annie and Martha leave the bar because the rest of the episode is them escaping from this crazy night. Um, all of that just all together just feels really sloppy and just it didn't work for me. It just felt really out of place and jarring to me. So as they're leaving the restaurant, um, they run into Perry outside the restaurant. Um, and he says, hey, aren't you that girl from work? It's me, Perry. And again, the reoccurrence of... Um, men identifying Annie as girl is just great. I I love that as a recurring element throughout the episode. And apparently, um, the black leather jacket that Perry is wearing is a reference to the, 
I think season four, season five episode of the original Twilight Zone, Black Leather Jackets. Um, obviously, I haven't gotten to that episode yet, so I don't know. I think I just saw that in passing that it was like on, on like a Reddit thread or something that it was a reference to that. Um, and I guess the design on the helmet is a reference to either that episode or a different episode. Um, but again, I haven't gotten that far in the original series, so um, yeah. Hopefully I didn't butcher that. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, Perry flips out and I, I like the escalation in that scene as well. Like Annie and Martha rush past him and he just loses his shit. And I'll play a clip here. Real fucking polite. Well, you Let's think go. you're so hot? Fucking bitch. Stop ignoring me, you fucking bitch. I think that this time, like, I like this because it's kind of, um, a little bit of variety to an extent to this kind of casual misogyny and it's escalating the overall uh, depiction of misogyny in this episode. And this time it's kind of a play on catcalling to an extent and to, to uh, in a more broad extent, like broader terms, it's also kind of commenting on, you know, women being just uh, borderline harassed with unwanted attention just because they're women. And there's this unspoken, like, um, expectation for men that, okay, because, because they're a woman that they are attracted to, they are required to speak to them, um, which is not the case and <laughs> has not been the case in my experience. Anyway, um, <laughs> Jesus. So in the car, Martha's off the bat, she's making excuses for what's happened. She excuses the men's behavior because they had too much to drink. And then in a kind of fascinating kind of, uh, additional dialogue or next line of dialogue. Um, she starts to say that the women uh, had too much to drink also. Like she's blaming herself for the actions of the men. And it's just really in keeping with her character as this kind of complacent uh, uh, woman in this society that's dom- society that's dominated by men. That is the worst time for me to have my voice crack. <laughs> so Perry starts chasing them and it's intense. Like I, I, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't fit. It almost feels like a filler tension scene. It's more surface level tension and I'm fine with that. It's, it's okay. Um, I don't really understand why Martha is directing, um, Annie on where she should turn and everything. Cause it's not like Annie, like it'd be different if Annie was like, it was established that Annie was in town from out of town or something like that. But as Peel noted in the opening narration, like it's her, like she's lived there forever. So I don't know. So they get to the house and the gate won't open and, but they've effectively lost Perry and we get a really good scene between Annie and Martha in the car. Cause Annie lets slip that something happened with Dylan and Martha gets super like defensive and like, and like, um, she hears like she hears her out and she's trying to like get to the bottom of what happened. And at this moment, Annie, it's kind of Annie's turn to blame herself for the actions of men. Like she says that she must have given him some confusing vibe. And then he just got fucking nuts. And I don't know, just like that scene in the car between Martha and Annie about Dylan is just so strong and so well written because Martha understands what she's going through. Like, she explains like I had a lot of bad dates, um, in italics, um, before I met Mike. And it's just, it's so, there's so much subtext to that. And it's just, it's so 
palpable. Um, I think that's the second time I use that word. Anyway, um, also kind of a strange motif throughout the season that I'm finding here is people instantly believing others in the Twilight Zone. Um, we had previous to this, we had Joe Beaumont telling Justin Sanderson in Nightmare at 30,000 Feet that he believed him. And we also had um, uh, Uncle Neil, I think, in Replay uh, telling... Uh, was it Nina? Um, that he, he believed her about the, about the camcorder and everything. Um, also to, in a different extent, (laughs) in a different context, we had, um, in, in six degrees of freedom, we had, uh, oh God, the surgeon, what was her name? Ah, um, we had her telling Pearson that she believed him. Um, and to get to a seat when all hell was breaking loose on the flight deck. Um, so it's an interesting kind of motif, motif throughout the season. And maybe I'll put together some, I'll, I'll, after the season ends, I'll put together, um, some notes to, for my, for my season review episode that I'm really hoping I can get Tiny on board for, but I don't know if he, uh, will have time to watch the entire season by then. So we'll figure it out. So, as I said before, Martha mentions that before Mike, she had a lot of shitty dates, and Annie kind of mentions, uh, Annie, like, kind of lets it go that she thinks that it's the meteorites that's causing it. And I really like Tessa Farmiga's performance here, because we've been with her this whole time, and she has been considering the events the whole night, but she instantly realizes how stupid she sounds when she says that it's the meteorites that are causing it. And I feel like that's just a very natural organic response to it because it's just it is ridiculous like these characters are in the twilight zone but it's like they are thinking about the situation they're they're kind of pointing out that like oh i think it's the meteorites but no that's ridiculous um i just i love that so um after their little heart to heart in the car they see that perry comes back and the episode kind of turns into a legit horror movie for just a moment so they rush inside and tell Mike. Mike runs out um, after snapping at Martha. Um, he runs out and he beats Perry to death. Um, and it's very aggressive and very, um, uh, very brutal. Uh, Annie tells Martha to call 911, but she can't get through. So it's evident that it's happening all over town at that moment. So Annie locks the door. Then we get Mike returning to the house and Annie tries to convince Martha that Mike is sick. So Martha's in denial and she ends up opening the door to let Mike in, but no one's there. And that's like the episode has turned into a home invasion movie or a scream-esque slasher flick. And even the score sounds very reminiscent of scream in this particular moment, which is no surprise considering that Marco Beltrami, Marco Beltrami, uh, one of the co-composers in in this season of The Twilight Zone composed the score for all four Scream movies. So I thought that that was a nice nod. Scream is one of my favorite like horror movies ever. Um, as noted, I think I've probably said it on this podcast before. It's the movie that kind of made me love movies. So Mike kind of appears behind them and uh, just oh, I I love I love Ike Barinholtz in this scene. Like he's incredible. Like he says like Oh, you should have seen me. Uh, just like this kind of bravado of this macho, macho kind of manly kind of thing. And so they follow him into the kitchen and here's where Ike Barinholtz just kills it. Like I, I haven't really been thinking in t- like, I haven't really been thinking in terms of like recycling actors throughout the, the, the life of the twilight zone. Like 
I really love John Cho's performance in The Wonderkind, and I like Tessa Farmiga in this episode, um, and I like Ike Barinholtz as well. Like, I would love to see these actors appear in other episodes as different characters, obviously. Uh, but anyway, he mentions that it felt good letting that guy have it. It felt really good. I'm going to play a clip from this scene because Ike Barinholtz is so creepy and intense. So here's a clip from this scene with Ike Barinholtz. Uh, Mike, just uh, put it down and, and wait. You know, I just saved you two from a fucking psychopath. How about a little thank you? Okay, Mike, you, you, you don't have to yell. I'm not yelling! You know, maybe next time you don't lead a lunatic to my house. Two girls drinking at a fucking bar? You're asking for it. Don't interrupt me! I am done with you interrupting me! Every time I have a fucking story, you gotta open that mouth of yours! I'm trying to keep you safe! And I just, I love it so damn much. It's just so intense, so creepy, so eerie. Um, and it's just so, so unsettling. And it's also just kind of sad to see Martha complying to her obviously deranged husband. Uh, to come like closer to blow out the candles and just the whole scene again is just so great and terrifying and the escalation is it's much quicker and much overt than like the escalation in the scene with Dylan at the beginning of the episode but we're about you know what 30 minutes into the ep- or 26 minutes into the episode uh, so obviously that escalation has to be quicker um, to the detriment of the end of the episode but we'll get to that um But yeah, it's just so great. And when he says like two girls drinking in a fucking bar, you're asking for it like that. I don't know. That's a little it's a little bit on the nose, but Baron Holtz sells it for me so well. Like, I just love his performance in this scene. Um, but um, here's something that I flat out did not like in this episode. Um, so Mike loses his cool and he chases Annie through the house with a knife. Um, what I didn't like about this is that in an episode that is so focused on providing an authentic look at like the women's perspective of like what, what it's like to be um, a woman in a male dominated toxic masculinity world um, that is in the, in the terms of this episode becoming more and more heightened as a real like heightened reality. Um, it does such a great job of showcasing like what it's like to be a woman in this scenario and showing like showing the audience what it's like to experience certain interactions and survive uh, disturbing events. Yet Annie does the most tropish thing imaginable. And she falls down while being chased with chased by a madman with a knife. And like, ah, it just, it feels like the episode does such a great job with her characterization, but just has to put in the heroine of the story acting like a standard final girl in a horror movie. It just felt so wrong to me and anachronistic to the tone of the episode, even though the tone of the episode is becoming more and more heightened and ridiculous with all of the violence and everything in this moment. It just felt like it just, it just felt like the dumb bimbo kind of trope of horror movies and it just felt wrong to me i just i didn't like it so there's uh more of a altercation with 
uh, Mike and Martha and, or really Mike and Annie. And then Martha comes back and knocks Mike out with the skillet that she got at the dinner scene. Um, and then they leave, they see Perry's dead body and then they get into the car and are immediately in an accident and then they get out and that's when they realize the whole town has just turned into chaos. And I really like the way that we're brought into that part of the episode. Like the car accident is sudden, it's surprising and it forces them to go on foot. Um, there's this cool, like really cool, like camera thing where it, it like pans up from, uh, from the passenger side window of the car to kind of show like how disturbing everything is and, and like how alone they are on the street. Um, and there's also this really cool, like red glow that's permeating throughout the town. It's a good aesthetic choice kind of showing, um, show like kind of, kind of implanting in us like, okay, this, the meteorites have, you know, taken over the town. Um, so then they see a woman that's walking down the street alone, clutching a, 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 a large portion of hair, um, long hair. And I, I'll be, I don't understand the imagery of that. Like, I don't know if that's, I don't know what they were going for. I genuinely don't understand. If you know what that was supposed to be, let me know. Cause I, I'm at a loss. So, um, so, okay. This is where the episode just goes batshit and kind of really starts to fall apart for me. So Annie and Martha are trying to get to the docks to get to Cole and Steve and that's when they witness the madness unfolding throughout the town. Uh, the fender bender that they walk up to, um, felt kind of tame and awkward. Um, like it wasn't like, maybe that was the point to kind of showcase like, Oh, the, the drivers of these two cars that have just had the small fender bender are going to like try to murder each other, um, over that. But just seeing it, like seeing like just a tap of the fender bender just didn't, didn't work for me. Um, then we get what I'm, what I'm like 90% sure is Zeke the Geek, but it might be, Luke, no, I don't think it's Luke Kirby. I, I don't know. It's Zeke the Geek, I think. But we get this quick shot of a man popping up and saying, crazy night, huh? And I hate it. I hate, I hate it, hate it, hate it. Like, really, what the hell was that? Here's a clip just because I hate it and you guys should hear it too. Crazy night, huh? <laughs> So I, I hate, I don't, I don't, it's so goofy and out of place and weird. So anyway, as they travel through the town, they pass a guy standing on a police car firing a shotgun in, in the air, which is a really cool, like mob mentality, uh, looting imagery in the episode. Like I, I have no real complaints with that. Like, and there are various shots of mob, men, mob mentality, senseless destruction, looting all like the whole nine yards. And it's, it's well done. Like it's, it's cool. Like it, some of the choreography is a little off. Like, like you can tell that they're kind of pulling their punches a little bit. I don't know how else to describe it, but the overall aesthetic of it is very, um, intense and, and good. And so a man calls to Annie and says, Hey Annie, don't you remember me? And then immediately gets bludgeoned by someone behind him and like a blood splur- spurts out. It's very violent. And I, I, I like that. And I feel like him and Perry represent again, this cat calling and unwanted attention kind of thing, um, that men do to women. So also in the scene, here's where we get more MAGA hats. And again, the politics of the show, they align pretty close to my own, but how about just an ounce of subtlety again, just don't regret, don't repeat it. Like 
if they had just had one red cap in the bar scene and nowhere else, that would have been a great quick statement. But no, they had to have at least three guys wearing MAGA-like hats in the town chaos scene. And the only thing that that accomplishes is to distract the viewer. Like, I know the show has been brigaded by Trump supporters and, like, dogging its depiction of social commentary and everything. And the vast majority of those arguments against the show are just trash. But I really hope that those like reactions don't drown out the legitimate criticism that people have about the show's lack of subtlety. And I just, I really hope that they work on that next season. I just, it just, it bothered me because I'm just like, okay, we get it. Like you're, you can't just do like a little bit and just let it, let it breathe there. It's, it just, it really bothered me. Um, so anyway, they run past storefronts, none of which have twilight zone references that I'm aware of. Um, I did look, I, I couldn't find, I, I don't think any of them had, like, they were kind of generic names anyway, like toys and stuff. Like it wasn't like any, um, like anything that I think would be Easter egg worthy. Although that would have been a pretty interesting, um, place to put Easter eggs, but whatever. So at this moment, uh, Phil pops up and approaches them. And again, um, this is his final scene in the, in the episode. And again, he's so one note, like even at that moment, he is trying to explain what's going on to them. Like he's mansplaining what's going on while also trying to convince them that he's, that he's sane and everything. And I don't know, like even if the episode intended him to be, uh, to solely be there for comic relief, I didn't like it. It didn't work for me. Um, it's kind of funny, but in the midst of all the chaos, it feels so forced and awkward. I just, I didn't, I didn't like it. But what I did like was the kind of subtext of this scene. And maybe I'm reading into it a little much or, or a little, a little bit, and I'm kind of pouring stuff into it that isn't there. But I feel like Phil may be telling the truth that he's not really crazy or affected by what's going on. He's still an ass and a know it all, but I think in this moment he's harmless. And what I like about this is that Annie and Martha leave him there. The subtext being that their experiences make them distrust all men in this, in this scenario. Like I just, I, I just, I just think I, I like the idea of the subtext being Annie and Martha can no longer trust men because of their experiences in this moment. I think that's an interesting statement for it to make. Of course, his voice does get all distorted, like a traveler esque. Um, so maybe he was lying, but, um, I think when it comes down to it, the kind of subtext is, is there for its potential, potentially able to, you know, read that into, into the subtext. So now we get to the dumbest part of the entire episode and maybe the entire season thus far. So they get to a gas station and Martha has come around to the idea of meteorites and has the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Here is a clip of her, of, of the dumbest moment of this entire season so far. Things are making them stronger. We, we have to try. Okay? We have to fight back. Fuck! It's not doing anything! 
Martha. Martha, you know why. <laughs> it's just the way. So she thinks they should use the meteorites to fight back. And it is so stupid. Even if it's, even if like, like with Phil, even if it's meant to be comic relief and everything, it's, it doesn't work. It falls so flat. It just feels so stupid. It, it pumps the brakes on the tension of this episode of this moment where ever they're in the midst of all this chaos because it is so ridiculous and dumb. I just, I don't like it. And then it's cut really short because a guy emerges out of nowhere with a piece of meteorite attached to a chain yelling for them to get off his property, which again, I feel like this must have been a reshoot um, or an insert like moment or insert shot to establish the chain that Dylan will have later. And it feels so added in and it's all too sudden. And I don't know. I even feel like maybe, maybe the dialogue is like 80 yard in, um, it just, it feels so awkward and just, ugh, I, I didn't like it. Then as they, as they make their way toward the docks, uh, they pass by the fountain that the men are worshiping. Um, and again, that's really asinine and it doesn't fit for me, for my taste, it doesn't fit in the scene at all. It doesn't fit the tone. Like at this, like during this like stretch of scenes that I've been describing, um, the episode has shifted its tone significantly from, and, and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm adamantly opposed to it because the, the, uh, the plot that was building, the, the connections that were being, uh, built upon, in the kind of subtext of, you know, women and their, their place in a, in a male dominated world, like all of that stuff, like so much goodwill was, was created in the opening, like 15, 20 minutes of this episode only to be just squandered by this ridiculous heightened reality where all the men are going completely crazy. And so in this weird ass fountain warship scene that doesn't fit for my taste at all. We see, I think it's Zeke yelling, fuck you, Chad. And then another guy yelling, fuck your feelings, which I don't know. Now that just feels off and weirdly specific. Like him saying, fuck your feelings feels like the show is veering into, is veering more into male stereotypes. Like the whole idea of like, Oh, men don't care about your feelings or anything. It's like, that's just a very broad generalization and everything. It just feels just out of place and weird. I, I don't like it. Um, yeah. Uh, so they make it to the dock and we get a shot on the boat of Cole and Steve drinking and Steve is drinking with the stone and he flips out like Cole doesn't want to drink, doesn't want to take a shot with, with the meteorite or drink with the meteorite. Cause I think he plops it in the, in the beer. um, because he's a sensible young man. Um, Steve, uh, tries to make out with him, but Cole senses that something's off and he, he breaks it up and everything. And then, then we get a shot of Annie and Martha going, uh, like arriving at the docks and we get this awkwardly written piece of dialogue that I feel like might be 80 yard in also, um, where, the, um, uh, Annie says they're on a boat called the Achilles and Martha says, how do you know that? And Annie says, don't ask. And I'm like, my immediate reaction was don't ask because it's really awkwardly written and we're barely like, like the audience can barely suspend their disbelief about this. Um, it just, it felt really just clunky. 
So Annie and Martha get to Cole, and Cole has escaped the boat. Steve is trapped in the boat, despite the fact that men can operate a motorcycle, explain their theory about what's going on, and also have the mental capacity to fashion a weapon out of the meteorites. But Steve can't open a door on a boat. Like, that just felt just really dumb. Just for lack of a better word, it just felt dumb. And so we get the final showdown with Dylan showing up with the chained meteorite that again, there's no explanation. I feel like it's meant to imply that he killed the guy at the gas station, but there's no scene to indicate that there's nothing to indicate that he was even like nearby. I don't think I, he may have been like seen in the chaotic, like town square scene, but I don't remember him. Like it's not established that he's like after them. Really? He just pops up out of nowhere. And I don't know, like maybe he was following them, but there's nothing to show that that's what happened. I don't know. So (laughs) I'm burying the lead though, because the episode goes even more off the deep end with Dylan's introduction to the doc scene. He is singing the Lionel Richie song that he had playing when he had, uh, when, when he and Annie were having their magical night. And as, as creepy as Luke Kirby is, able to play it's still not menacing to me in the least and it's not a clever callback it's just silly and it made me roll my eyes and just really i just thought it was really just awkward i was like i was it again so much goodwill for, for the beginning of this episode just to be squandered by this ridiculous last act is just such a shame so um Annie sees the chained meteorite and exclaims, what the fuck is that? Which is also what makes me think that the gas station scene came later and was like added in post. Um, because she's already seen it. Like, what the fuck is that? It's the thing that I just saw five minutes ago at the gas station when, when the man was going to kill us with it. Like that, like it doesn't fit. It just, it's awkward and it doesn't fit. It takes me out of the episode. And then, uh, uh, at this point, okay, I have lodged my complaints with with Dylan's reentrance into the episode with this. Um and this is also a criticism, but also it makes me laugh a lot because it's pretty funny. It's dumb funny, but it's when Dylan yells, "Why don't you like me?" <laughs> um, my thought is like right there, dude. I'm like that's why. Like what you're doing right now, that's why. Um it's so, it's funny, it's dumb, but Luke Kirby can't really save it despite being a relatively creepy, like, character. He does creepy characters well. Um, it's just, it was another eye rolling kind of thing. So, there's an altercation. Cole starts to turn, but fights the change. Uh, Annie takes Dylan out, and there's this cool underwater shot of the red glowing water, uh, red glowing water as Dylan sinks uh, from the weight of the meteorite in the chain. So they're rescued, and we're taken into the last scene. Finally. <laughs> uh, it's in a military tent. They're, they're running tests and everything. Cole's, uh, so, so Cole comes up and tells them, tells Annie and Martha that they, that they drew his blood and he's like, well, I had this rock in my back pocket the whole night. 
and that that kind of came out of nowhere. Um, but Annie deduces that the scientists won't find any cha- any trace of infection because there is none. The meteorites were placebos. Paying off the um, line of dialogue early in the episode in the opening scene where he, she talks about setting up placebos for her job. Um, okay. So this is going the monsters are due on Maple Street route. And that is, in theory, okay. But this throws away so much good characterization and genuinely creepy atmosphere um, because it feels like they're taking the Maple Street ending without understanding the Maple Street ending, like and understanding why it's such an incredible and iconic ending. Um, so the episode is saying that not all men are affected by it because some men can resist the urges that the majority of them just choose not to. So the show is literally saying that the actions of all of the men in the episode are a result of behavior that is already inside of all men. So are we meant to believe that the meteorites literally had no bearing on the chaos whatsoever, or was it just an excuse for the men to wreak havoc and destruction? Either way, it's still, in my opinion, and this is going to be harsh, it's still spitting in the face of Maple Street because what made the monsters are due on Maple Street so iconic was the character interactions and the slow buildup of the community of neighbors turning on each other, seeking a scapegoat for this un- unknowable um, sequence of events and the small seeds of doubt that grow amongst them. So in contrast, what not all men does is create a scenario where meteorites rain down randomly. Men go crazy because it's in their blood and that's it. And like, I hate that the show is making me think this way, but there's nothing to differentiate, differentiate the actions of the men from the inaction of the women. Like none of the women freak out and go crazy or anything. Like the only thing men can do to stop themselves is to choose to stop themselves. And it's just, it's, it doesn't fit. It just feels weird. It just doesn't, uh, I don't know. I like, are we meant to assume that women are completely immune to mob mentality in this scenario? Is there any twilight zone element to this episode or is it just the placebo that is bringing out the worst in all the men? Like, I wish that there was more development of that. Like, I wish that there was more of a, I don't know, just more of something like more development of that. And it's just so freaking, irritating to see an episode that was so compelling in its first half completely and utterly shit the bed in its last half um i and it's like i said those those there are scenes in this episode that are so powerful as like a statement of feminism as a vessel to showcase what it's like to be a woman in a, in a world filled with toxic masculinity and how it feels to be in a moment with a person who could literally snap and kill you and maybe get away with it. Um, it w- at the drop of a hat, like that is, those are terrifying, like thoughts and everything. And those are compelling things to bring out, but then it's squandered by just this really haphazard, goofy chaos scene that, plays like to the cheap to the cheap to the cheap seats 
And I just, I don't like it. Um, so we end on a fun scene of like feminism, the army guy telling Annie that she would look cuter if she smiled more and Annie telling him no. Um, that was cool. I, I like that. Uh, as we pan across the, the tent, the TV proclaims that there was a mass shooting and the gunman was a man in his twenties, which I haven't seen the blue scorpion yet at this, t- at the time of this recording, but I kind of wonder like what I've pieced together about the plot of the blue scorpion. I wonder if this is like, you know, a little Easter egg for that episode. So we get, uh, we get Peel's closing narration and I will play that here. Tonight, Annie Miller found herself in the center of a mysterious and violent epidemic. What she encountered was no material disease, but rather a plague of conscience. One that gave men permission to ignore decency, consent, and fear. And tonight, all it took was a few innocuous little rocks to turn men into monsters. Here, in the Twilight Zone. So, okay... In this closing narration, Peel says that a uh, a plague of conscience conscience gave men permission to ignore decency, consent, and fear, and I think that that would have made for a much more compelling and well-rounded episode if instead of the men freaking out and causing mass destruction in the most like rudimentary like way possible, what if the meteorites caused them to drop the casualness or the institutional like misogyny of society that the episode depicted so well and instead made it more overt. It could have made for a more subtle and disturbing episode. Like instead of having them attack other men and like murder each other and everything, have it be just drop all pretenses of fake, um, fake, uh, chivalry, um, and just be more overt and like, I don't want to say attack women, but like have them be like more, you know, threatening toward women because they don't have that, like, in, uh, that, um, their inhibitions have been, have been, um, lowered, I guess. Um, yeah, I just think that would have been for a more interesting episode instead of this just batshit crazy third act, um, chaos thing. Um, yeah, so I don't know. There was a lot of good in this episode. I'm, so, on Obsessive Viewer, one of my recurring co-hosts is my friend Kirsten, and I'm, I think we're actually gonna hang out Saturday, and I'm gonna kind of show her this episode, and I think on an upcoming episode of The Obsessive Viewer, I'm gonna have her kinda talk about it, cause I wanna get her perspective on it. Um, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll throw that, throw like a snippet of that into the feed here, but I don't know. Check out Obsessive Viewer for that in the coming weeks or days or whatever. Um, that's my review of Not All Men. Um, it's not all great. Some of it is very great. Um, some of it's very just incredible and, and well done. Great dialogue, great writing, great, um, you know, everything. But there is so much that I have issues with just from, the way the storytelling is like, I would be, I would be very interested to know the background of what happened or like how this episode was produced because it feels like it's, I don't know. It kind of, on one hand, it feels like there were too many cooks. Um, it feels like maybe someone had way too much input and like there was a clash of, of vision on it, or it feels like they realized that they didn't have something that they needed and they decided to scrap it and do something else entirely at the last minute. It just feels very clunky and and out of place. I just, I, I don't know. And I, and I mean, man, this episode, like I said, it, 
it deals with such an important topic and everything. And I, I wanted to love it. I wanted it to be great. And it was great in certain points, but just really just went off the rails in so many, so many ways during it. So, um, yeah, so that's not all men. Next time on the podcast, I, on the bonus review, I'm going to be reviewing point of origin, which at the time of this recording I have seen, I did break my little rule and I did watch an episode, uh, before I was able to record a review of the, the previous one. Um, and I'm recording this the night before the season finale, uh, drops. So I'm going to probably watch the blue scorpion tonight or tomorrow, um, before I review point of origin. But anyway, that's coming in the coming days, days, hopefully. Um, and then on the main feed, I have up next a hundred yards over the rim, which I previously reviewed with Brandon Cruz over on his podcast submitted for your approval. So if you don't want to wait for my review of a hundred yards over the rim, check out that show from about a year and a half ago. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. And I don't know, I may just focus on finishing the new season of the twilight zone. Um, I'm not sure yet. Just kind of have a few like bonus episodes just so I can, I can get this season done cause I've fallen so far behind. Um, and so I can make room for the, for the black mirror, uh, bonus reviews but we'll see um having said all that that's it for this episode this bonus episode thank you guys so much for listening um let me know what you thought of this episode of the twilight zone because as you can probably tell like i had some very you know um big opinions of this and uh big reactions to it so i would be very interested to hear what other people thought of it uh you can you know where to find me links in the show notes as well uh thank you guys so much for listening and i'll see you next time Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewers annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. 
And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Why don't you like me?